What is good guys, welcome to Top House Sports, where we analyze and break down sports games from the week, as well as our reactions and predictions from this past week. I'm Hansel Chu along with Katie Mutamit and we have a lot to talk about, so let's get started. And first of all, USA just beat Iran earlier this morning 1-0, which punched their way to the round of 16 against Netherlands on Saturday. And USA has been playing really, really well. They've been really locking it down on the defensive end. But against Iran, Kaden, what, um, what was your takeaway from that game? Um, it was really a fight of the defenses. Like, the um, Iranian's defense held up really well for a good chunk of that match, but... Um, here and there, the U.S. would get some breaks, and eventually one of them turned into a goal, and Pulisic really just threw his body up for grabs in order to make that happen. And I guess good, I want to say good on his part, but also his status for the future, see if he, he'll play in the Netherlands game, because they're going to need him if they're going to want to fight in the future. But yeah, again, hard-fought match, two very competitive teams, as we saw, um... The only way that U.S. was winning this is if they won, not tied or a loss. So, and they ended up winning. So it's good on their part. The United States defense has been their main focal point of success throughout this entire World Cup, and their record right now one win and two draws, but no losses. Losses which punched their way to the World Cup, and throughout this World Cup, the United States only allowed one goal in the entirety of their set play. They only allowed one goal to Wales and against England. Uh, no goals were allowed in that tie, and just against Iran this morning, won a zero win for the United States. And their strategy against the World Cup is to defend and then counterattack. And we saw a lot of that throughout the three games that they played. They defended really well, defended, defended, and then once they're able to get a stop, you know, they set the ball out into the offensive, and then they're able to counterattack from there. But a big reason why I think that they're winning a lot of these games, not just, just because their strategy and how they're playing, but... I think the United States, out of all these teams I've been watching, they play with the most heart. They play with the most passion, and it seems like they have something to prove. The whole country's behind their back, and they have a chip on their shoulder. And play after play, you just see them. They want the ball more. They're hustling for the ball. They're trying to have as much possessions as possible. And I think there's a big reason why they haven't allowed a single goal in the past two games and only one against Wales. It's just their heart and their passion for the game has been allowing them to just get to places and just be at the right place at the right time yeah no um like like you were saying like this defense from the u.s they've just been locking down and that's eventually what creates a lot of their offense and without that i feel like they would have been really really struggling and like not only this game but we saw them against the powerhouse of england too like they really locked down and just created that tie and it was good for them being able to do that as we saw them just destroy wales today it was a Quite quite a mismatch over there, but it's good to see that the U.S. is sticking with the competition, and I I actually think they have some something left to say in them and in, in this tournament, and they're not done yet. And let's look ahead in their matchup against Netherlands. Um, I think a big concern for me though for this United States team, even though they're playing really well and it seems like they have a lot of momentum and hype and hype going their way. Uh, I still think their offense is very lackluster and they still need a lot of improvements to be made if they actually want to compete against a tougher team such as Brazil or France. Uh, many times against Iran and against England, they had their chances to score, but every single time it's just a little bit out on the top, a little bit out to the right. And if they want to beat these tougher teams, they cannot be putting up only one goal every single game because that's not going to be their keys to, to success against big, better teams such as France or the Netherlands they're going to have better firepower on the offensive end and at some point 
you can only play with so much heart and passion before skill starts to take over. And when you have a team such as France or Brazil, you have one of the top players in the entire world on their, their teams. And talent alone, they could get through this United States defense and they're going to be able to score. And when you're only putting up one goal a game, you're going to have a lot of catching up to do, especially if the other team scores early. Um, yeah, I couldn't have said it really better myself. Um, they're going to play a lot better of opponents in the future, whether it is going to be Netherlands or even other teams like you mentioned, like Brazil or Portugal. Teams that just have like way, way more constructed offenses and their defense needs to be more prepared for that. And if their offensive woes continue to struggle and they're not able to match that of the opponents, then that's when we'll probably be able to see the fallout of them in the tournament. So in order to really succeed, I feel like the United States just needs to get a handle on their offensive consistency, and then from there they'll try to flourish as a team, and that'll be good for them. Or Yeah, most definitely. Yeah, If we see their offense uh, step up a little bit, because I know there was a couple of plays from the Iran game where they were about to go up 2-0, but then... Um, the guy from the United States, he went offside and that uh, unfortunately took back their goal. But there's some moments that, are, that we've seen in the World Cup where they've shown flashes of offensive potential and they're able to get down and have chances to score. It's just a matter of if they're able to put the ball into the goal. And we see that they're capable of doing so, but it's just a matter of if they can and not if they are able to. And let's move on to the NBA the Lakers, they won their last five of seven games. They did suffer a crushing defeat to the Indiana Pacers off of an Andrew Nembhard three-pointer at the buzzer. But with their level of play significantly being better in these past couple games, what do you think was their key to success in their win streak? Anthony Davis. I really think like you can't emphasize how good he's been in this recent stretch for the Lakers. He's just returning to form. Like It's good to see him just play with less restraints on his body because that man is the same guy who put up those like historic numbers with the Pelicans all those years ago. Whether it's those 2020 games. We saw, what, a 30-36-21 rebound, 8 assist performance with 5 steals and 5 blocks. That's not something that any NBA player can do. And so if Anthony Davis is playing at this level, I think that the Lakers can be in good shape. We saw a little bit of struggle from LeBron in yesterday's game versus the Pacers, which is honestly is a little bit concerning for me because if LeBron's age is like beginning to catch up to him, he's he's not he should not be demanding the focal point of this offense, and I think it should be going to Anthony Davis. And I honestly think that the Lakers' success, if they go and ride with Anthony Davis as their first option and allow everyone else to play through either him or LeBron, I think that that's when you'll start to see success. And that's what they've been doing through this stretch, really. And so it's good to see that the Lakers are over overcoming their woes and this team is starting to win games because they had the talent always. It's just a matter of execution, and now they're executing. I do agree. The MVP-level play of Anthony Davis has been a key focal point of them coming back from their horrible start, but as well as Russell Westbrook off the bench and as well in the starting lineup sometimes. This guy has been shooting the ball way better than we've seen in his entire career. I believe he's shooting around, what, 34, 35, maybe even 36% from three-point range, which is a career high in his whole career. But also, he's not really turning the ball over that much anymore, and he's being way more efficient with his dribbles. He's attacking downhill more often than not now, and not just settling for jump shots. And I feel like that was mainly because LeBron is not on the floor with this injury that he missed for about a week or two. And because of that, all the players on this team have developed chemistry with each other, and they're all playing with each other. They're all playing as one team, as one unit. They're all on the same page, on defense, they're... 
there's some lapses where there's been issues, but for the most part, their defense has been playing really well as well. And then offensively, they're playing with each other. They're playing in the flow of the game, and it's not really isolation basketball. However, though, LeBron came back for the past game against the Spurs and against the Pacers, and I think we both agree there's a major concern with LeBron James right now, whether that be age or his usage rate. LeBron James has this effect where he demands the ball so much, and I feel like that is honestly becoming more of a problem than a solution to the Lakers' problems. We saw yesterday the LeBron effect in where they blew the 17-point lead to the Pacers, it was mainly because LeBron had the ball so much, and we all know LeBron is this great player. He's able to do whatever he wants on the court, and he's undoubtedly either top one or top two in the entire in, in NBA history. But there's also shot selections where I saw yesterday where it was just very concerning, and it was just not needed, such as like fadeaway turnaround three-pointers, fadeaway mid-ranges from like near the three-point range. Just not good quality shots that the Lakers needed in that stretch, and... LeBron is this guy that just needs the ball so much, and if he doesn't have the ball, he just kind of becomes disengaged in the ball game a little bit. And we saw on the defensive end, he's been giving up so many points to different players. It's been a main, I would say, a main problem for the Lakers defensively. LeBron is a, such a defensive liability now where he just kind of ball watches, and opposing players just get open looks off of LeBron, whether that be open three-pointers, open layup, open cuts. LeBron is just ball watching, and... There's just op- just too many points given up. We saw in the run yesterday, just so many threes. Andrew Nemhard opened three-pointers. On the last play, Nemhard was wide open. LeBron late to the closeout, and that was the ball game for the Pacers. So if you're the Lakers and with LeBron, is there any changes that you need to make? Maybe different strategics on the offensive side or maybe even consider trading him? Now, I, I, can't, I just can't see the Lakers trading LeBron. Like, to be even... It's so tough because I feel like ultimately they would succeed if they got a solid package back for LeBron and allowed them for, to just mesh with Anthony Davis and the rest of the Lakers roster better. But in this current position, I really think that you you just need to establish who the number one option is. And that's not LeBron on this team right now in his career. Maybe he was back on their title run in 2020, but definitely it's not right now. And so you need to emphasize that Anthony Davis is, is the primary scorer of this team. And they really don't need all that scoring from LeBron anymore. Like, I think his main job for this team should be similar to Westbrook and just be a primary facilitator and just let the shots come to him. Because obviously, he he still has some juices left. You know what I mean? Like, he's not completely burnt out. But he definitely is not able to hold the same amount of control over a basketball game that he may have been able to in maybe, like, 2018. And so, yeah, I think that he should just not force anything because I think a lot of the time in that fourth quarter where we saw the Pacers come back it was just LeBron trying to just initiate the offense and in ways to not help his teammates and so while while it could be good sometimes to try and search for your offense yourself because you are LeBron James it just comes to a time like you need to value the team's winning and if you see the lead starting to slip just move the ball and try to find an open player and make a play. Don't don't try to just force anything. And if that if you do that, then I think you'll be fine. 
I mean, it's been clearly a lot of times where in the media, LeBron says that Anthony Davis is that number one guy. He is going to be the number one guy. He's going to be the focal point for this offense. We're going to run the show through Anthony Davis. But on the court, it just seems otherwise. It seems almost hypocritical where LeBron is the number one guy. He's the guy that's trying to score and do everything on offense. And I talked about this about two months ago on one of our episodes. I talked about how when Russell Westbrook, LeBron, and AD are on the court, Russell Westbrook needs to be the guy that brings up the ball, the guy to be the point guard for this team, or else it's just not going to lead to success. And when LeBron was out with that injury, we saw Russell Westbrook bring up the ball, becoming that point guard, and that led to a lot of success, whether that be a pick and roll off of Anthony Davis and Russell Westbrook, or Westbrook driving and kicking out to open shooters and them shooting the ball or driving in for a layup. The ball was moving way better when... LeBron was out on the when LeBron was out with injury, and now with LeBron back, it seems like the offense is more stagnant. It's a lot more standing around, and that's what led to them having a really slow start to start the season. And I talked about this already about two months ago. LeBron needs to be more off ball when that big three is on the court. Yeah, when Russell Westbrook's on the bench, then he could run that point guard duties and run the offense with him and Anthony Davis. But when all three of them are on the court, I said it so many times already. LeBron needs to play more off ball or else the offense will be too stagnant. Everyone knows where the ball's going to be when LeBron has the ball. And Divas knows what's going to happen. LeBron's going to try to drive or he's going to shoot the ball. And they're going to send double teams to LeBron. And they're going to try to make other players... Uh, make a play happen and when that happens the defense is so congested in the paint and we know the Lakers do not have great three-point shooters and when the paint is clogged harder shots for Anthony Davis LeBron and Westbrook when they're attacking the basket so if I'm Darvin Ham I'm putting LeBron on the off ball like I don't care what needs to happen Darvin Ham was brought to this Lakers organization to become that enforcer the guy that's not afraid to call out anybody at all. He's going to be the guy to hold everyone accountable. And so far, I'm not really seeing that from the coach right now. So if I'm Darvin Ham, I'm forcing LeBron to play off-ball more when that big three is on the court. I, I really agree completely. I think it just needs to be emphasized through maybe the coaching staff or just the players or something needs to change. And LeBron, while you are arguably the greatest player of all time, your time is just coming slowly to an end. Not at an end yet, but just yeah you're the the same capabilities that you may have had a long time ago may not had you may not have anymore and so i think that it should just be just emphasize less on the like um on like more more on the court and less on the media standpoint of that of being anthony davis the first option of this team definitely and one more thing before we move on Russell Westbrook, he's playing. He's been playing at such an elite level. He's playing at a high level. But if you're the Lakers front office, are you still listening to trade calls for Russell Westbrook, and are you still willing to move him to a different team? Um, listening, maybe. Uh, you know his contract is still forty-four million dollars a year, so I think that's just take a, takes a toll on the salary. So. I think with that type of contract and having him come off the bench, while he is giving great production, it just kind of increases his value if I look at it like that from a general manager standpoint. And so I wouldn't completely close off the possibility of trading him. But for now, I would definitely demand more for Russell Westbrook. And that's a good thing for the Lakers to be able to say, oh, if we don't need to trade Westbrook anymore, he's playing well, he's found his groove. But if there's a trade offer, which we like, which we can dump some salary cap and maybe get a couple shooters, then I think that they should still make that move. Oh, yeah, more definitely. I would think that the same as well. 
Let's move on to the Kings right now. They're 10 and 9, 7th in the West. And do you think the Kings can make the playoffs this season with how well they're playing? Now, listen, they just had a tough stretch losing back to back games, I believe, um, to the Celtics. And I forget yesterday. The Suns. Yeah, the Suns. Yeah, so two really good teams. So I look at them to be more of like a 10 7 ish team in my eyes, just because they played two good opponents, uh, both at the top of their respective conferences. And so. Um, I do think that they have a chance to make the playoffs, really. Um, I've really liked the production this year that I've seen from Kevin Herter, Malik Monk, players like that that can just give a spark. Um, the Kings really have had names in the past. Like, they've had Cousins, they've had Fox, and they just really haven't been able to get over that hump. But now with Sabonis Fox beginning to play like an all-star and just a complete roster, I do think that they can just make a push for the postseason. I don't know how far they would necessarily get. But this is a team that hasn't made the playoffs since 06. So I think that they'll be happy to make the playoffs in general. So, yeah, I do I do honestly see them being able to this year. Me, I don't think so. I think really? there's just too many tough teams in the West and just not enough room. Play-in, I think they could make the play-in, t- in the play-in tournament. But playoffs, I just don't know. There's just too many tough teams. And the four teams I see that are not going to have a chance to make the play-in tournament this year are the Spurs, the Rockets, the Jazz, and the Thunder. Out of those, out of that 15 teams, only four I don't see making a chance in the play-in. That leaves 11 teams fighting for a play-in tournament spot. And we know the play-in tournament only consists of 10 teams. So one good team in the West are not even going to make the play-in tournament. Then after that, only eight teams are able to make the playoffs, and two are not going to be able to. And that includes the seventh, the seventh, eighth, ninth, and tenth seed. So there's already four teams fighting for two playoff positions, and I don't know. I just don't see them making it. There's too many tough teams out there. I do see them finishing maybe as a ninth or tenth seed, but getting into the seventh and eighth seed in the playing tournament, I don't know. With only one game, they might be able to if they're playing their best stretch of games near the end of the season. But I just don't know. There's too many tough teams. I just don't think so. And I think the only way they're able to make the playoffs is if De'Aaron Fox and Demonis Sabonis play at another level as what they're playing at right now, which is really hard to say because Fox is playing at a career-high level. He's playing like an all-star. Sabonis is putting up, like, what, 18 and 10 a night. They're playing really, really well, and even that might not be enough to make the playoffs. So if I think, if I see them making the playoffs, Fox has to increase that scoring production at a higher level than what he is right now. So Bonus probably might have to average 23 and maybe even 13, which is crazy to say because they're both playing at such a phenomenal level and that might not be enough. Yeah, and I wanted to emphasize, like, this this team, they statistically have the number two offense in the league, and I, I feel like they've definitely clicked on offense, but they've struggled so much on defense, allowing, I, I believe, the second second most amount of points per game at 117 in the league. And that's just not something you can do as a competitive team. If you're le- if you're letting teams score, especially more than you, I think their differential is in the negative. So you can't be doing that as a playoff caliber team. So if they don't adjust their defensive scheme, then I definitely see your point in that. And while it could have been largely affected by the loss of the Celtics, who are just on a different planet right now, <laughs> losing by 35, going on a what 38 to four run throughout the third and fourth quarter, just. Yeah, I, I I don't even want to talk about that, but yeah, just they need they need to crack down defensively, and if not, I definitely see them potentially missing out on the playing tournament. Even yeah, I mean, backing up your point, we see the key players right now that are playing really well for the Kings: Kevin Herter, Keegan Murray, Malik Monk. 
I think the first thing that comes to mind when I just said the names are offensive firepower, whether that be shooting, playmaking, scoring. You just think of offensive firepower, and you add in Fox and Sabonis. You, all you think about really is offense. You don't really have that defensive player that you can rely on to lock down the perimeter. I know Sabonis is not bad on defense in the interior, but perimeter-wise, you just really don't have anyone that you can rely on to get a stop. Yeah, and they, they've done a good job of surrounding this team with shooters like Herder, like Monk, but yeah, like you said, just no defensive players at all, really. Like, they... Uh, no. Davion Mitchell is a good perimeter defender. Other than him, I don't see anyone else on this team really having an impact. And so, yeah, it's tough, really, because there's such a key component of the NBA right now is defense. And especially if you don't um, capitalize on perimeter defense, then you know teams are going to take advantage. Teams that are able to move the ball swiftly, like the Suns, like the Celtics, and we've seen them just destroy the Kings. So, yeah. Definitely need to make adjustments if you do want to make a playoff push. I don't think it's out of the realm of possibility. Maybe a trade's needed, though. So it's it'll be interesting to see what they do, though. I think they're maybe a step or two away, but they can definitely figure it out this season. Definitely. I think one more thing, too. Right now, when I'm looking at this Kings roster, I don't see that player that they can rely on to come up in the clutch and come like become that superstar. And... I know you might not agree with me, there's Sabonis and there's Fox, but I don't trust Fox being that number one option, being that superstar that can carry this Kings franchise. Sabonis is a great player, but you cannot rely on him to become your number one scoring option either to become that superstar. I think both of them are great players, but you need a star player such as Donovan Mitchell, a Jason Tatum, a Luka Doncic. You need that one player that you could rely on in the clutch to you know, take this team to another level. We've seen Fox at glimpses do that sometimes, but more often than not, I don't really see Fox becoming that star player that can take this Kings and become that number one option, that superstar, to elevate them when they need it most. Honestly, I, I get what you're trying to say, but there's two volumes to it. Um, De'Aaron Fox is statistically one of the clutchest players in the NBA, so I know he'll give you buckets. The thing is... If he's not hitting, no one else will. And so I see your point into which, like, Sabonis is a big-name player, but he's not a superstar. De'Aaron Fox, while he, uh, like, these statistics do back him up, and he is, like, literally the clutchest player in the NBA statistically right now, he's still not at that level where he's a superstar. And so to get someone who you can say confidently closes games on a consistent basis, although he is statistically up there, it's not something that I think will continue down the stretch of the season necessarily and into the playoffs, if that makes sense. And so someone with clutch abilities and playoff experience is something that I think this team needs. Someone like a Donovan Mitchell, Jason Tatum, like you were mentioning. But I do think that he has the potential to do that. It's just like this, like I mentioned earlier, like this team not has not only has not made the playoffs in recent years they haven't made the playoffs since 2006 and so this team really has zero playoff experience at all even if they would have a 16-year vet on this team and so yeah it just shows like you really need playoff experience to succeed in this generation like if you don't you're not going to be able to succeed in that climate the energy is different the fans are different the pressure is on and just you won't be able to succeed as much if you were to in the regular season Oh yeah, most definitely. I mean, just from the eye test, like if I want one player with the ball that can give 
me a bucket, a guy that could take me for the win. I'm sorry, I'm not. I'm putting at least ten players above De'Aaron Fox. I know maybe the stats might back him up, but just looking from the eye test, right? When you just see all these games, looking just from a perspective of a viewer, I'm sorry, I'm putting at least ten players over De'Aaron Fox in the clutch. He might be one of the better players in the league in terms of statistics in the clutch, but I'm sorry, I'm taking at least ten players over De'Aaron Fox. Let's move on to the Pro Bowl to end off this segment, and there's a lot of great players on. Uh, in the NFL right now, but just going to be some players that aren't going to make it, not enough spots. But let's start with the quarterback position from the AFC. Which three quarterbacks do you have making the Pro Bowl this year? I think this was relatively easy, not even like a slight just consideration for any of the quarterback. It's Patrick Mahomes, Josh Allen, two MVP candidates, and then I put Joe Burrow in there, who's just been fantastic this season as well. Although his team may have not had the initial success to start the year, I think those three have solidified themselves as the three candidates for the AFC. I definitely agree. Patrick Mahomes, Josh Allen, but I got Tua Tagovailoa from the Miami Dolphins. He did miss about two to three games in the season. So besides that, he's been playing phenomenal. They have not lost it since he's been playing a full game. I think he deservingly does should have a spot in the Pro Bowl roster. But I do agree Joe Burrow will probably slide in there because Patrick Mahomes or Josh Allen's probably going to go to the Super Bowl this year. And for the NFC quarterbacks, I got Kirk Cousins, Geno Smith, and Jalen Hurts. Um... Three three popular names. I um, have uh, two of those. I have G- Geno Smith, Kirk Cousins in there. Although I don't have Jalen Hurts because I do think he's going to make the Super Bowl. But, and a little bit of intuition. I don't think that Brady's going to get there. So I'm going to say Tom Brady's going to make the Pro Bowl. And Jalen Hurts is going to be somewhere else in that weekend. So, I mean, that's that's a little, I don't know. We'll, we'll see. We'll see. <laughs> Interesting. And for the running backs in the AFC I got Josh Jacobs, Derrick Henry, and Nick Chubb. That's tough, man. It's like there's literally five candidates I think can be fit for this running back position. And while I agree those three are some really good names that you mentioned, I I have to say Josh Jacobs and um, Nick Chubb I think are locks. But Austin Eckler's also been so impressive this season, and his t- his touchdown consistency has just been crazy. And to say that I'm not putting Derrick Henry in this is like it, it, it kind of baffles me being the rushing leader of the past few years, really. And also, uh, like, I, I don't know if I want to bring his name into this conversation yet, but Ramondre Stevenson has had a quite impressive season from the past, and I think he deserves recognition. But just again, so many, so many good running backs, you really can't put him in the conversation yet. Kind of blasphemy, bro. Derrick Henry, number two in the NFL, and you don't put him in the Pro Bowl roster. I know, I know. That's got to be a little blasphemous. But for the NFC, I got Saquon Barkley, Aaron Jones, and surprisingly the rookie Kenneth Walker from the Seattle Seahawks. Mm, interesting take. Um, I have the two that you mentioned for Saquon and Aaron Jones, but I have an interesting name that's kind of come up in recent weeks. Um, Tony Pollard of the Dallas Cowboys. I think he's really taken a step up since kind of just emerging as the number one back in the offense. And so... I definitely want to. I I think I could see his name in that combo too. I can't disagree with that. That's not a bad pick at all. Tony Pollard, a great player as well. Let's move on to the wide receivers from the AFC. I got Tyreek Hill, Stephon Diggs, and Devontae Adams as my wide receivers. Oh, I kind of made an oopsie. <laughs> I I I I thought that Devontae was still in the NFC, and so I'd put Jalen Waddle. But definitely, oh, after thinking that over, uh, Ty Tyreek. Stephon Diggs and Devontae Adams those three are untouchable yeah <laughs> I mean Jalen Waddle does have a very very solid resume and should honestly become 
a a Pro Bowl this year. So I'm not I'm not opposed to that idea of uh, Tyree Kill and Jalen Waddle both in the Pro Bowl. He does. They both deservingly should be in the Pro Bowl this year. Yeah, for sure. And for the NFC, I got of course Justin Jefferson, AJ Brown, and CD Lamb. I've got those same three. Yep. All right, so I guess we're pretty straight on for the wide receivers. Tight ends, I got Travis Kelsey from the AFC, as well as Mark Andrews, and from the Steelers, Pat Fryermuth. Um, That's quite literally the same, except instead of Fryermuth, I've seen the emergence of someone who I feel like doesn't really get a lot of recognition. I'm going to say David Njoku of the Cleveland Browns. I think he's been having a stellar season for them. Had that game tying catch but then later a game winning catch as we uh, wouldn't come to know it as so i i think that yeah just he's been phenomenal phenomenal for the Browns this season not a bad pick in joku i also do agree as well along with andrews and kelsey of course those are my three yeah and for the nfc i got tj hawkinson george kittle and from the cowboys dalton schultz Ooh, i like that schultz pick um i have um i have those same wait you said George Kittle, TJ Hawkinson, and um, Dalton, Schultz. Dalton Schultz. Yeah, I have the same three. <laughs> <laughs> That's crazy. Okay. Yeah. All right. Let's move on to the defense. For um, the left ends, I got Nick, or from the defensive ends, defensive ends, excuse me, I got Nick Bosa, Miles Garrett, Brian Burns, Max Crosby, Vaughn Miller, and Aiden Hutchinson. Ooh. Sim- similar list. I have some names in there as well. I have um, Nick Bosa, Brian Burns, Montez Sweat. Max Crosby, Miles Garrett, and then Von Miller. Hmm, interesting. For me, I think Aiden Hutchinson has been phenomenal, and I mean he has two interceptions as a as a defensive end. I think that's just kind of that, that crazy. is pretty impressive. That is really yeah. impressive, especially from a rookie as well. But Montez was not a bad pick at all, too. And for defensive tackles, I got Chris Jones, Aaron Donald, Quinn Williams, Jonathan Allen, Javon Hargrave, and Vita Vea. Interesting. Um, so I have a very similar list. Vita Vea, Aaron Donald, instead of... Um, I, I have DeForest Buckner in there, actually. In the AFC. Yes, in the AFC, along with, um, let me see, Chris Jones, Jeffrey Simmons, actually. Mm. And I wrote down the same player twice, so a little, <laughs> little bit of oopsie on my part. Not bad. I think all of them are deserving of a Pro Bowl, too. And for our inside linebackers, I got Roquan Smith, Quay Walker, Nick Bolton, Jordan Brooks, and Patrick Queen, and Jordan Hicks from the Vikings. Good good picks, good picks. Um, some similar names on my part. I have Jordan Brooks, Jordan Hicks, Isaiah Simmons, along with um, Olakun of the Jaguars, Nick mm. Bolton, and Roquan Smith. Oh, interesting, interesting. And for our outside linebackers, I think... These are some more familiar names. Matthew Judon, Micah Parsons, Alex Highsmith, Bradley Chubb, Daniel Hunter, and Hassan Reddick. Uh, similar names for me. Um, I have Matthew Judon, Alex Highsmith. I have Khalil Mack from the Chargers, mm. though, in there. I think he's a little bit of an underrated season, along with Micah Parsons, of course, Hassan Reddick, and then Daniel Hunter. Mm. So we both got the same NFCs. Yes. And quarterbacks, so this is going to get pretty controversial here. Yes, yes. For the AFC, for me, I got Patrick Sertain. Jonathan Jones and Sauce Gardner. Oh, now you see, I, I see the argument on Sertain, but I feel like on a more kind of broad level, I have I have the same two: Sauce Gardner, Jonathan Jones. But I was looking at Marlon Humphrey. Mm. His statistics, um, I feel like in the different categories, 
he's of course we know Sertain. He's a lockdown corner. But if we're looking at the statistics, I feel like it tells a little bit of a different story. Although I, I do recognize him as a arguably top three corner in the league. So it's really whichever way you want to go on that one. Just Sertain doesn't have the interceptions, but just advanced metrics itself. Besides the last two weeks, honestly, I think he's been <laughs> having a pretty subpar performance in the last two weeks. But besides those two weeks, he's been having such a lockdown season. Like advanced metrics and all that, I think he's been giving up like the least amount of yards and catches besides those last two weeks. So Sertain, I think, should be in the Pro Bowl. And for my NFCs, I got Tariq Woolen, Darius Slay, and Patrick Peterson. Ooh. Interesting picks. Um... Uh, for me, I have Patrick Peterson as well. I have Trevon Diggs, and mm. then I have Tariq Woolen. Interesting. So Slay and Slay instead of Diggs. Pretty yes. interesting. For my uh, strong safeties, I got Derwin James, CJ Gardner-Johnson, Harrison Smith, Talanoa Hufanga, Kyle Duggar, and Von Bell. Now, as a Patriots fan, it makes me smile that you put Kyle Duggar. Unfortunately, I have three in the AFC that I feel like are a little, little bit better. Um... Starting with Derwin James, of course, Von Bell, and then I have Deron Harmon in mm. that conversation as well. Along with for the NFC, I have Harrison Smith, CJ Gardner Johnson, and Hufanga as well. All right, so just Kyle Duggar. Pretty surprising he didn't choose Duggar. I, I think know. he's been having such a great he season. He has, he has. I just, I don't know. Something about the season that Harmon's having, I feel like is also underrated as well. For our free safeties, I got Minka Fitzpatrick, Quandre Diggs, Kevin Byard, Javon Holland, um, Kevin Joseph, and Antoine Winfield. Ooh, Winfield's a good pick. Um, for me, I have Jesse Bates. I have Javon Holland, Minka Fitzpatrick, some similar names as well, along with Quandre Diggs. And I seem to not have included the rest of my picks. <laughs> <laughs> little, little oopsie on my part again. But yeah, I think you summed up the list. The free safeties are really untouchable kind of yeah. in that conversation. So yeah. And let's... Uh, and lastly, but most importantly, the kickers. They've been putting up points, a very key component to any NFL team. For my AFC picks, I have Nick Folk, Justin Tucker, and Tyler Bass. I have the same three. <laughs> All right. I guess no conversation for that one. And for the NFC, I got Ryan Suckup, Graham Gano, and Brett Maher from the Cowboys. Ooh, I like the Maher pick. Um, I have Brett Maher as well. I have Ryan Suckup, and then I have Daniel Carlson from the Raiders. Mm, interesting. Oh, wait. Raiders is NFC. My bad. So I'll, I'll take... I'll take... Um, oh, a- AFC. Yeah. Uh, I'll take Eddie Pinero. Oh, he's a pretty... He's a solid kicker. I'm not going to lie. He's a solid kicker for the Panthers. He had a, that one crazy game against Thursday night where he put up like at least 16 points just from kicks alone. Yep. So not a bad pick right there. But that concludes our Pro Bowl rosters. And for more episodes, check out Top House Sports from Spotify. I'm Hansel Chu, along with Katie Motembit, and we'll see you next time.